exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. We'll also be talking to Kay Kopelvitz. She's the founder of the USA Network, and she's the first female network president in television history. She was the speaker at MSU's fall commencement ceremony back in December. We'll also be talking to Dr. Sarah Abood. She's the coordinator for student programs in MSU's College of Veterinary Medicine. She's also an assistant program in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital. But first up, we're going to be talking to Steve Esquith. He's the acting dean of MSU's Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. It opens up in August of 2007. But stick around for more Friday Night Insight. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Today I'm visiting with Steve Esquith, who is the dean of MSU's forthcoming Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. It's called the Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And what that means is two things. One, a residential college is a place where students have their classes. It's where they have their rooms, where they live, where they eat. It has its own dining facilities. And also where the faculty have their offices and where they have their classrooms and workshops and and seminar rooms and public performing spaces. It's an all-purpose facility for living and learning. That's the residence part of the residential college. The arts and humanities part is also inclusive. What it means is that students will be studying the visual and performing arts. They'll be studying history. They'll be studying various cultures and have immersion activities in world languages. They'll be debating ethical issues that cut across cultures and cut across time. They'll be involved in their own performances. They'll be involved in their own gallery exhibitions. So it'll be both a place where they study and where they present their own work and creative activities uh, to other people. It'll also be open to the rest of the university. It won't be a cocoon. It won't be a, a, uh, an insular activ- uh, program. It'll be a place that, where the the doors swing both ways and the windows are always open. Uh, we want to invite community partners, we want to invite other programs and departments, students who are not majors in the residential college. So we see a lot of opportunities for partnering, for collaborating, and for generating new activities in the arts and humanities. People may be familiar with existing residential colleges at MSU. James Madison and Lyman Briggs are very well known. Similar or, or compare? Talk about how they're the same or different. Mm-hmm. Well, there there's an important similarity that has to do with what I said originally about their residential living and learning function. Uh, like Lyman Briggs and James Madison, this is a place where all of those activities go on under one roof. They're different from Lyman Briggs and James Madison in two respects. One in terms of the content, where Briggs is mostly in the natural sciences and Madison is in the policy sciences. We're working on the right side of the brain, if you will. <laughs> and they're also different in, we're also different in the sense that our curriculum is structured somewhat differently. Uh, in Madison, there are several majors within the college and students can dual major within Madison College, uh, but there's no single James Madison major. In Lyman Briggs, most students have joint majors. They have a major within uh, a regular department, and then they, if they so choose, can have a Briggs major in 
the sociology of science or what used to be called science and technology studies. Our approach is to have one major within the college. So if you're in the residential college, that's the box you check for your major if you're applying to MSU. And within that major, there's a core curriculum, uh, both in the first year, students take five courses uh, that are similar, and then in the second year and the third year, there's also a structured curriculum for uh, all students. On the, that's the foundation, and then from that foundation, students branch off. Uh, we call them elective pathways, and it's through those pathways that students can then choose an additional major, they can choose a specialization, an interdisciplinary specialization, or they can choose a minor. We've been very uh, happy with the speed with which music and theater and art and art history have created or are in the process of creating new minors for our students who want as their elective pathway, pathway to work in those other programs. So we have a core curriculum, one major, and then five or six elective pathways that connect students to these other programs on campus. You might say it's a combination of the Madison model and the Briggs model. Right? We have one major unlike the four or five majors in Madison, but uh, we have a core curriculum, as Madison does, which extends up beyond the first year. Like Briggs, we're connected to other programs in a very systematic way through our elective pathways, um, but we, uh, we have only one major rather than the multiple majors that Briggs students would have. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White visiting with Steve Esquith, who is the dean of MSU's new coming, not quite online, residential college in the arts and humanities. And I'm curious, Steve, take us back a little bit. How did MSU see the need for this and, and sort of talk about its its place in sort of modern education? Because isn't the liberal arts degree sort of on its way back? But I guess a little bit about how this fits in with boldness by design and just you know the the world grant and those kinds of things right i think that that you're right there is a uh, a sense in which liberal education and the collegiate experience is coming back students undergraduate students who pay uh, you know tuition at msu are concerned about you know what kinds of opportunities do we have at msu for exciting new undergraduate initiatives boldness by design is committed at, uh, at the very top of the list of its commitments to enhancing the undergraduate student experience. The, uh, the new residential college, I think, is the, the leading edge of that enhancement of the, new, of the undergraduate experience at MSU. And our goal is to, uh, is to be a kind of catalyst for undergraduate education across the board. We'll be collaborating with the other residential colleges in a variety of different programs that have already uh, received external funding from the Association of American Colleges and Universities. We'll col be collaborating, as I said, with music and art and theater in uh, new degree programs. Where did this all come from? I think it came from, one, the students' desire to see the liberal arts be on a par with the natural sciences and the social sciences, and also the vision of President Simon, who was the one who said, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to find a way 
to provide our undergraduate students who are interested in the performing arts and visual arts and history in ethics and literature and creative writing to have the same kind of residential uh, living learning experience. We know that that's where students learn best, where they have contact with faculty, where they have small classes, where they have opportunities to generate new ideas. Cognitive scientists have told us that you remember and you understand best when you generate ideas. And the only way for students to be generating ideas and testing out their own uh, views is in a, a context in which there is that kind of interaction with faculty and those kinds of opportunities for creative and uh, creative activity by students. Let's talk some nuts and bolts. Where will it be? Uh, sort of how many students are you looking to have in the program? You're, I assume you're admitting some now hiring faculty, just sort of an update. Uh huh. Well, that's a good question. It, uh, it's right between the Snyder Residence Hall and the Phillips Residence Hall, which is over on the east side of campus, uh, just off of Bogue Street. That, those two residence halls are being remodeled this year, so students weren't living in the residence hall, so we'll have spanking new dorm rooms, as they used to call them, uh, and between the two dorm rooms is the, the new structure, which goes down several floors and goes up three floors. It has a large multi-purpose performing space. It has um, music practice rooms. It has creative arts workshops. It has a gallery overlooking a two-story uh, atrium where the dining facility will be. We want, the, we want and we believe the college will be a, a vibrant place. Uh, we're in the process now of both admitting students and hiring faculty. Uh, the admissions office has been very aggressive in terms of getting the word out and, and working with us, as have the admissions officers in Lyman Briggs and James Madison. Uh, we have over 150 applications to the college at this point and the admissions office has processed approximately 100 admissions. So now the, uh, the next step is to kind of move those folks who've been admitted uh, here to MSU uh, and have them participate in the, the early orientation program in the summer, build their major, and come in the fall. Our goal is to have 125 to 150 new students here in the fall a few of those will be transfer students, but the majority, the vast majority, will be students new to MSU. The faculty is being hired uh, at this moment as well. We have faculty in history, faculty in art, faculty in world languages, faculty in uh, the study of culture and anthropology and sociology, and we're working with art and music and theater again uh, to hire people in those areas who would uh, participate both in the college and in those departments. We also have a grant from the uh, MSU Graduate School to hire uh, 10 graduate fellows, doctoral students, who will work as mentors and tutors with, gradu with undergraduates in the program. Uh, these are graduate students in digital writing and rhetoric, graduate students in history, graduate students in uh, French, classics, Italian, and uh, less commonly taught languages. And their role will be not to 
work as teaching assistants in large lecture courses. All our classes will be taught by faculty, but these graduate students who've expressed a particular interest in working with undergraduates in a residential setting will work as mentors in a creative workshop, say a poetry workshop, or tutors in a world language program uh, if students are interested in a a study abroad program and a graduate student has a, a special expertise in that uh, world culture or the uh, language that the study abroad program will stress, the graduate student will be a co-leader in the study abroad program. We also have what we call study away programs which uh, take students off campus but not uh, to other countries working in uh, neighborhoods in Lansing in rural communities in this area in Detroit in Chicago with neighborhood theater groups with neighborhood uh, community uh, organizations and graduate students oftentimes have a, a special expertise in those areas uh, our goal is to to bridge the gap between graduate and undergraduate education through these special fellowships that the the graduate school has so generously uh, provided to the college. If someone listening to us is intrigued about MSU's College of Residential College for Arts and Humanities, what's the best way for them to get some more information? Uh, while the college isn't uh, online in the sense of being open for business today, it is online. Uh, we have a website, www.rcah.msu.edu, or they can email us directly, uh, rcah at msu.edu. Uh, the website has a webcam, which will take them through the building as it's being sort of constructed. It also has a fairly detailed description of the core curriculum, the first-year uh, classes, including a first-year seminar that all students will take with a faculty instructor, instructor, and um, either through the website where they can click to an email connection or directly uh, by the email address that I've given you, uh, they can get in touch with us, make an appointment, come in, talk to we have faculty and advisors already here on staff talk to them about the program we have a big uh, inaugural event we're planning for our first year the Snyder and Phillips dormitories will be open for business in August August 15th uh, in fall 2007 in January 2008 will be the gala uh, inaugural opening uh, for the uh, uh, college uh, facilities in that complex and we're working with the Wharton Center and the School of Music and Art and Theater to bring in some top-notch talent and engage the students in uh, in the process too so we want the inaugural to have student involvement that's why we're not going to perform it for students uh, in August but we're going to perform it with students in January and our headliner will probably be uh, members of the Alvin Ailey Dance Theater who will be with us here in Wharton at Wharton in January and will be coming over to the residential college to lead us in uh, in an inaugural uh, uh, event. Dean Esquith, uh, anything important we've left out or just some final thoughts you want to leave listeners 
on the residential college in the arts and humanities. Right. I think there is a, an important uh, question that needs to be addressed, and that is career development for students. Where, where does a degree in the residential college in the arts and humanities point? What are the, the opportunities? What are the things that are, are, uh, are out there as future career choices, uh, job prospects, employment? Uh, I think that there are three ways in which the, uh, the college prepares students. And all three of these ways, to me, uh, are important for our region, for our state, uh, and for the, the global economy that we participate in. So I, I think we're, we're opening a new door for students that is important both for them and for the rest of the, the community that within which we live. Those three areas I would describe in the following way. One is many of the students who come through this program will be prepared, very well prepared, for future academic work, both at the university level, in research institutions, and at the K through 12 level in teaching capacities uh, in the areas of uh, art and culture, history, world languages. We we believe and uh, and we think. Uh, students will will sense that this is this is true that the direction of those academic areas uh, is moving towards greater interdisciplinary collaboration uh, greater awareness of global connections and so that the program for us is a program that is in close harmony with the direction of the very best graduate programs at MSU and elsewhere. So this is, this is a program that offers students a, uh, a view and a, a, uh, an entry point into the very best work that's being done in graduate programs in the arts and humanities. A second group of students, I think, will be attracted to the program are students who, let's just say, uh, are very much committed to the to the collective or the public good. These are students who have been involved in outreach activities, in community service activities in high school, and want that to continue to be an important part of their education at the university. All of our students will take eight credits of civic engagement work, and that can include that will include things like community service learning, but also things like uh, public art performances and you know community murals and creative writing programs and literacy projects in in refugee projects within the city of Lansing so I think students who are committed to activism in that sense in a, in a very general sense will find that this this college is a good preparation for a career in those areas whether it's local or global or both. The third group of students, I think, are, are students, I referred to the right side of the brain before, are students who, are, uh, who find pleasure and uh, satisfaction in, in the moment, in the performing arts, whether they be the visual arts or installation arts or theater and dance in a more conventional sense. Um, Many of our students who come to MSU have had that kind of experience in high school, but for one reason or another, they've decided that majoring in those performance areas is not all that they want to do 
as college students to really commit yourself to you know piano performance or a choral ensemble major uh, is very time consuming and it has to be in order to achieve the kind of proficiency one needs to have a career in those areas but many other students want to have that as part of their education and also major in other areas major in social work major in criminal justice major in uh, a world language and for those students I think we provide that kind of blend of performance and other ac academic experiences so that they can go on possibly in in education but also working for a local community theater founding a new community theater company and being the manager of the company or helping to build a new museum in a you know in a small rural community or working in a major metropolitan area you know as a uh, arts and culture organizer uh, so we think that we provide those students with um, with opportunities in terms of career. Let me use a metaphor to sort of end that uh, pitch. Uh, I think students in the arts and humanities uh, ought to be ought to think of their life after college as rock climbing, not climbing a ladder. Right? That there aren't too many career ladders left. And this isn't true just for the arts and humanities. It's true in the sciences, the natural sciences, and the social sciences. There aren't single career ladders where one starts at the bottom and simply climbs straight to the top. You need a kind of agility and a field of vision that's much broader and the kind of stamina that rock climbing takes. If you've done some rock climbing, you, you know it's exhausting. It's also very gratifying. And so our goal is to, is to educate rock climbers in the arts and humanities, uh, people who will have that kind of exhilaration and spirit of, uh, of discovery as they pull up over the top. And, um, and we think that uh, the residential college is not just a college where you can enjoy your four years and then try to figure out what am I going to do for a living, but rather build the, the strength and stamina and skills and agility uh, to pursue that, uh, a future career as a rock climber. Well said, sir. Steve Esquith is Dean of Michigan State University's Residential College in the Arts and Humanities. And again, for a lot more information online, it's rcah.msu.edu. And I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. At the football game, Jim shows the telltale signs of being wasted. He starts flexing for the camera. He refers to his muscles as gunboats. He screams, how's this for a halftime show? Jim streaks the field. It's easy to tell if you've had way too many to drive. But what if you've had just one too many to drive? Never underestimate just a few. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime Time. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Sunday nights, check out Sit or Spin from 8 to 10 p.m., where you can voice your opinion on what new music we play here on the Impact. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9. 
the impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White. Dr. Sarah Aboud is coordinator for student programs in MSU's College of Veterinary Medicine and an assistant professor in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital. Her specialty is small animal nutrition. That mostly means dogs and cats. And what they eat, when the, what they're eating when they're healthy, and how I help their, I also help their owners um, manage problems when they're not so healthy. When they're sick in the hospital, I consult with our veterinarians here on staff and the students, and I'm teaching students about nutrition for pets. Welcome to MSU Today, Dr. Aboud. So what are some of the issues in pet nutrition today? One of the biggest issues in pet nutrition these days is obesity. Um, f- depending on who you read, there are anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of dogs and cats in the United States that are considered overweight or obese. That's a major nutrition problem. Other nutrition problems are associated typically with animals that have chronic diseases. So for conditions such as diabetes, chronic renal failure, or cancer, we have diets or management therapies that we attempt to use to help animals through the acute phase when when something's really flaring up or the chronic phase of the disease process. Do obese dogs tend to be owned by obese people? There there are um, some indirect sorts of pieces of information that we have that indicate that uh, overweight dogs and cats tend to be owned by overweight people. Um, So some of it is our sedentary lifestyles. Although there are lots of people who are very active. Um, there are millions of dogs and cats, and most of them spend time indoors, especially in cold winter months. And most of their owners are exposed to a lot of easy, cheap food. You know, fast food restaurants are available for everyone. And so people's busy lifestyles, eating on the go, tend to contribute to less exercise for their pets. So what advice do you have for pet owners who think they have an overweight dog or cat? For a lot of the pet owners that I see who are um, clients of our teaching hospital, um, by the time they get to me, they've heard lots of advice from their their own veterinarian and so the advice is the same but people don't always want to follow it and it is pretty basic you know ingest fewer calories than you burn or burn more calories um, to try to lose weight so for our pets what can we do I mean as as animal owners we're in control of the food that they eat and the exercise that they get so we need to do simple things like use a measuring cup to portion out their food if we're free choice feeding them if we're we're filling up the food bowl and we're not really understanding how many calories that they need they're at more risk for obesity especially if they're a, a breed of dog or cat that's more prone to obesity and you might ask well what are some of those breeds and actually more and more there are a lot of them but um some of the breeds are Labradors, Golden Retrievers, and Beagles. And and it won't surprise you that those are some of the most popular breeds. So people have popular pets. People tend to overfeed themselves, not exercise as much. We tend to do that with our favorite pets. Uh, those are some breeds that over time have become genetically predisposed to obesity. So so portioning out their food, understanding for their body weight and their age and their activity level, how many calories actually do they need a day? 
Most owners would be very surprised to realize that their pets need very little in terms of volume of food. And that's because the pet food companies have taken all the work out of it for us. You know, so, so foods are very energy dense and foods that are marketed as complete and balanced for a young growing animal or an adult have all that that animal needs. We don't really need to supplement anything else. And when we come along and, and add in lots of commercial treats and snacks or people food right from the table or from the fridge or from the counter, we're, we're adding calories and we don't even often know how much. So minimizing treats or choosing low-calorie, no-calorie kinds of treats is, is always something that pet owners can talk to their veterinarians about. And the question they should ask is, how can I feed low-calorie, no-calorie treats? What, what are some good recommendations? People might be surprised to know that depending on the size of the dog treat, commercial dog treats can range anywhere from 10 calories apiece to over 300 calories apiece. And if you're a dog that only weighs 20 or 40 pounds, a couple of you know, 40 or 50 calorie treats can really add up over time. So that lends itself to this overweight or this obese condition. Cat treats, on the other hand, no matter who's making them, always tend to be in between two to four calories a piece because cats have about the same mouth structure, mouth size, and, and so the, the calorie or the kibble size of the treat, the shape of the treat, does not need to be big for a big cat versus a small cat. Measuring the food, reducing calories in the treats that people give, and portioning those out, and then increasing exercise. Those are um, exercise or activity. Those are the three big things that folks can do to maintain a good weight in their pet. And, and how do you do that in the winter months? Sometimes people say, well, my, my dog or my cat, they've never been a big exerciser, right? It's, it, and so you, you stop thinking about it as exercise, like, oh, gosh, I've got to walk the dog for half a mile out in the cold weather. You think more about it in terms of, I'm going to increase their activity. How could I do that? For animals in which I'm actually trying to help them lose a little bit of weight, I'll coach the owner on thinking about, let's put the calories in different places around the house so the animal actually has to work for their food. So stop putting it all in the bowl and making it available to them all the time. You know, if they've got stairs in the house, you can throw some up the stairs or down the stairs and let the animal go after it. Or if you're trying to teach a dog some obedience tricks or just good manners, always using a piece of their food, not an extra commercial treat, but kibble from their bowl. Use that as the treat to teach them to sit, stay, come, down, shake a paw, that kind of stuff. A little bit harder to do in cats to actually get them to exercise. So looking at all the kinds of toys that people use to um, keep cats stimulated is, is a, a thing that people can focus on. You know, one of the activities that people can do is go to the store or look at websites, see what things are available. Um, laser lights that you can flash on the wall, long fishing poles with little feathers hanging off of them. Lots of cats love those kinds of things to play. Can you summarize all that advice then, please, Dr. Aboud? Some of the key things that owners can do to help keep their animals lean are to measure out an exact amount of food for the animal each day and pay attention to the amount of treats so that they're limited and also pay attention to making sure that the treats that are given don't have a high number of calories. Another thing that people can do is look for ways to increase their pet's activity on a daily basis. 
Um, if, if that's not with toys, then it maybe it's just with movement. Um, taking animals outside on a leash to go to the bathroom, be it a dog. Um, some cats like to be walked if they've got a harness on as opposed to a collar around their neck. Uh, if owners don't know, then they can they can try to borrow a, a harness maybe from their veterinarian or a leash from their veterinarian, take it home for a few days, see if it'll work. How do you know how much exercise or activity your pet needs? We start with... We start, you know, to try to help owners nail down, well, how much does my animal need? We start with trying to figure out, first of all, for an animal of their size, what's, a, what's their basic resting energy needs? And then through a thorough diet history, we find out where are all the calories coming from. And we try to match that up. And, and if there are way more calories than what the animal would need and the animal's overweight, we know that we have to start with decreasing where all the calories come from. But at the same time, we, we ask the owner not only to keep a food diary, but we ask them to keep an exercise diary or an activity diary. And if we find out the animal's just not even getting five or ten minutes of exercise or activity today, we ask the owner to try to ramp that up by a minute or two. So typical 40 or 50-pound dogs um, they, they should be walked on a regular basis, once or twice a day. Um, for some people, if they have a very small space in which they can walk, that might mean walking the same space, perhaps around the yard several times. Um, for other people who have access to a half a mile walk or a mile walk, um, that's, that's reasonable. But if you find even with that kind of regular exercise on board, the animal's still not losing any weight, it's time to revisit the veterinarian and talk again about where are all the calories coming from. Should we actually change the food? Should we actually cut out commercial pet treats and move to stuff like fruits and vegetables? Dr. Abood, what about tips for managing your pet's health and well-being in the cold weather? Some good things that are, that are just basic common sense when we take care of our pets in cold weather is to make sure that they're not going outside with wet paws and wet fur. And, and if they have been out on a walk and they're coming back in and, and their feet are wet, to make sure that they're dried thoroughly. Sometimes people like to put boots on their, their pet's paws when they go out for walks. Um, and, and many veterinarians will recommend this, especially if the individual animal is prone to getting their paw pads um, broken open or frozen or, or if they have sensitive paw pads and sensitive fur. Um, many many dogs do really well with um, an outside sort of a sweater or or some covering, but if they're a heavy coated animal, they they don't need that. So, it's paying attention to making sure that if animals do enjoy being outside, they always have some kind of shelter. Uh, for for some dogs, that might be a an actual dog house or um, I want to say a lean to, you know, s- something that is partially open partially closed but but even if there's some straw on the floor or a blanket you know somewhere where they could generate some warmth warmth would be important and then also the other thing is just the amount of time so there's a general recommendation for people that if they're outside with their pets and they're starting to get cold their extremities are cold they know they need to move inside their pets do too if they start to shiver their pets are probably cold uh, it's it's that same sort of common sense of like um, you're a parent and you have a small ch- uh, an infant, right? You know what what kind of what kind of blankets, what kind of exposure should you have for your infant? Well, if if you're hot or you're cold, the infant should be appropriately covered too. So, if I had to, if I had to wrap that up, I'd say um, that making sure you know common sense wise, it's making sure that your animals are not exposed to cold elements for prolonged periods of time. 
just like we just like we would go out in the cold weather with appropriate covering um, we may need to do that for dogs especially some small dogs be that sweaters or, or boots and we want to make sure that if they're out and they're exposed to wet elements in any way slush or rain or snow that when they come in they're thoroughly dried the other thing to think about is animals that stay inside during cold weather. We often crank up the heat in our homes and we want to make sure that um, cats that like to, cats and small dogs that like to be near heat vents and, and heat sources um, have appropriate padding so that they're not burning themselves. Um, we want to make sure that if we're leaving home for a while um, that we are turning the heat to an appropriate level. It can be turned down so that your pipes don't freeze, but it, and it doesn't have to be cranked up just for animals. I mean, they have a fur, they have a fur covering for a reason. So they, they do well with the lower heat temperatures in the house. But um, anytime, well, I should, I should, one other thing I want to say is just like in the summer months, our pets, whether they're outdoors or indoors, need fresh water sources all the time. So thinking about changing a fresh water source daily even if the pet stays indoors all the time in the winter, is an important management tool, you know, important way to take care of our pets and keep them healthy. That's Dr. Sarah Abood, Coordinator for Student Programs in Michigan State University's College of Veterinary Medicine and an assistant professor in the Small Animal Teaching Hospital at MSU. Her specialty is small animal nutrition. For more information on the web, you can visit www.cvm. .msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. For MSU Today on Impact Radio, I'm Russ White. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For some high school students, school can be a dangerous place. A lot of gamers look at you as a game member, too. For some, just being in school can be a struggle. I wouldn't go to school. I didn't care about what my mom said. My mom would tell me, like, what are you doing for yourself? You're not doing nothing. But despite all the obstacles, inside every high school student is a graduate. People look down on you if you don't have a diploma. I want to graduate because they say I won't. Go to BoostUp.org and find out how you can help a friend, a son, a daughter finish high school. BoostUp.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Tuesday nights from 8 until midnight, the Impact's progressive torch and twang brings you the best in alternative country and grassroots music. Only on Impact Primetime. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432 3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio. I'm Russ White, visiting with Dr. Jeff Covan, Director of Primary Care for MSU Sports Medicine. Dr. Covan, what are your tips for staying fit in the cold weather? You know, I, I think one of the things that people have to understand is that cold weather doesn't mean to lock yourself indoors and not stay active and not stay physically fit. I think one of the most important pieces is to first off dress warmly but comfortably so that you can exercise but in the midst of that protect the extremities protect the fingers the toes the nose those areas and even the ears actually that are going to be more susceptible to, to cold injury. Uh, I think if you literally think about protecting those areas Finding an exercise that you enjoy, whether it's walking, whether it's running, um, make sure the surface you're on is, is ice-free, is safe, 
those kind of things allow people to still get outdoors, enjoy the winter, because it's a long haul here in the winter months, and you need to have an outlet because staying inside all day can get pretty dreary and depressing for most of us. So, so I think getting outside and being active is important. Making sure the surface you're on is crucial. Making sure you protect those areas that are most exposed is important. And wearing a hat will keep the heat in throughout your entire training program. What about breathing heavily during the cold weather? Is there a temperature at which you should cover your mouth and nose if you're exercising outside? Well, I think most of that's common sense. I think if it's really uncomfortable for breathing, then I think that's enough to say that's probably the wrong environment. Most often, our temperatures aren't going to be that cold here. It'll be the wind chill that'll get you in a little trouble. Um, and, and I think if you use common sense, if the te- temperature is in the teens and below, then you probably want to be a little more cautious before you get outside. And the surface you exercise on is paramount this time of year, isn't it? And I run outdoors all winter, except when it's brittly cold and wind chills are ridiculously cold and the surface is really unstable because it's not worth getting injured because that defeats my purpose and most of our purposes for exercise, which is just to stay active, stay fit, um, because we like our holiday sweets. And the way to be able to tolerate that a little bit is to stay on top of it and be one step ahead with your exercise. Dr. Covan, how long does a person need to get their heartbeat up to maximize the fitness potential of their workout? Well, I, I think you know most of the things that have come out from the American College of Sports Medicine is that you need to actually maintain a heart rate somewhere in the range of 70 to about 85 percent of your maximum for anywhere from 30 to 40 minutes. So really what happens for most of us as exercises, it takes us five or 10 minutes to get warmed up. And if you're only doing a 20 minute exercise, you've only got 10 minutes of really maintaining a heart rate in an appropriate zone to get the cardiovascular benefits, just the general physical fitness benefits and endurance benefits that you want out of that. So if you think about a five minute to 10 minute warm up and a five minute to 10 minute cool down, and then a 30 minute exercise where you really maintain that heart rate. And when I say 70 to 85% of your maximum, if you take 220 minus your age and then multiply that by 70% or up to 85%, that is the target you want to try to keep your heart rate during that 30 minutes. So if you're able to do that, then you really get the cardiovascular benefits and the fitness and weight loss and calorie burning benefits that we all look for with our exercise. What is sports medicine exactly, Jeff? That's a great question because you know here at Michigan State, MSU sports medicine is who we are, and the perception for years has been that we take care of our MSU athletes, and we do, but that's a very small part of what we do, and most of that time is outside of the normal 8 to 5. That's evenings, that's weekends, that's games, that's all the time we take care of them away from the normal day. But our office really is about anybody and everybody who's active. And I think sports medicine doesn't mean you're elite. Sports medicine doesn't mean you're 14 to 18 years old. Sports medicine is a six-year-old soccer player who has heel pain. Uh, Sports medicine is a 78-year-old racquetball player whose shoulder develops some soreness. Um, Sports medicine could be the people that are walking the malls in the winter to stay active and fit, who start getting some knee pain. And when people call our office, what we ask for is, are you active? What do you do for active? Is it somebody who sits on the couch and now has back pain? Well, that's not what we call sports medicine. But if you're a walker, if, if you're active, if you're doing things that in some way your injury, your illness, whether it's medical problem, whether it's a musculoskeletal problem, and it re- and somehow impacts your ability to perform the sport or activity you enjoy, then that's what we're here for. So we see about everybody for about everything. But we really try to limit it or really try to focus it more on those people who are active. Summarize again, if you will, your advice for getting or staying fit. You know, I I think first and foremost is that we all get real excited after the first of the year that that's our resolution, that we're jumping on board now and we're going to get ourselves fit. 
Well, first off, you can't just run into this. You have to walk into it. You have to understand where you start in the process. And for some of us, that means getting an evaluation by a physician to get you cleared for that. Because some of us over 35, there are risks we put ourselves into when we jump into exercise. Um, so first and foremost, get cleared by your physician so that you're able to then start a program. And when you start the program, you don't start running, you start walking. And, and I don't mean that in a literal sense, but you start with exercising 30 minutes to 40 minutes at a slower pace and build up from there to maintain that heart rate that we talked about earlier at about 70 to 85 percent of your maximum. When you go outdoors, just make sure, number one, the surface you're on is safe. It's, not, it's dry, it's not icy, it's not snow-packed. Protect those areas that are most at risk for exposure. Toes, fingers, nose, ears. Wearing a hat will keep the heat in. Dress appropriately and layer yourself so you're covered and protected that way. If you go indoors, same thing is make sure you have the appropriate attire when you exercise. You don't need to have a lot of sweats. You don't need to overheat and do those kind of things. But make sure you're dressed appropriately with the right shoes and the right clothing. And have somebody instruct you on how to use the equipment appropriately. And then once that's done, then you're ready to start progressing your program, you know, three to four times at minimum a week and build up throughout the winter months. That's Dr. Jeff Covan, Director of Primary Care for MSU Sports Medicine. For more MSU Sports Medicine on the web, visit rad.msu.edu and click on Sports Medicine. And for more MSU Today, visit us on the web at msutoday.com. I'm Russ White for MSU Today on Impact Radio. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Saturday nights from 8 p.m. until 2 a.m., tune into the cultural vibe to hear the best in both local and national hip-hop, plus live mixing on the ones and twos. Only on Impact Prime Time. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9, The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today on Impact Radio from the campus of Michigan State University, WDBM East Lansing, and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. Kay Koplovitz, cable television pioneer and holder of a master's from MSU, was the commencement speaker at fall graduation in uh, December of 2006 at MSU. Uh, I'm Russ White, and I caught up with Kay Koplovitz just before she was about to address the students at MSU and asked her to recall those early days of cable television and how kind of the whole thing got started. Well, actually, the uh, origins of USA Network started here at MSU when I was a graduate student, wrote my master's thesis on satellite technology and uh, its impact on communications, cultures, governments. And actually, I, when I went back and reviewed it about five years ago, I, I thought to myself, no wonder people thought I was from outer space. Because um, it seemed esoteric at the time, I'm sure, that uh, 
that we would be using satellites for sending programs down to people's homes uh, directly or through cable systems, because at that time there were really only three broadcast networks and maybe a few independent television stations, and it seemed like quite enough to everyone, and why would I be doing this anyway? Uh, but it was something that really gripped me as something important to do, and and I um, I was a little earlier in my career as an undergraduate student, a television producer, uh, even though I have a science degree, uh, one of my jobs was being a television producer. And I worked for WTMJ in Milwaukee in between semesters. And after I graduated, right after I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, and I could see that people at the station were very proud of me of being the first woman producer at the television station. But I could also see that they did not see me as the manager of the television station, the president of the television company, nor the president of NBC, which is what I wanted to be. So I left, and I went into satellite communications, and uh, I thought, I'm going to start my own program networks. And uh, it was so my dream. I wrote my master's thesis here, and I never let go of that dream. Uh, I worked at the satellite industry, the cable industry, just to prepare myself for the time that the opportunity was ripe. And, and when it came, I took advantage of it and uh, was uh, fortunate enough to be in the right place, know the right people, have worked enough in the industry to uh, be able to get the backing to launch Madison Square Garden Sports, which was a forerunner to USA. So, um, you know, it's a dream come true. Can you talk a bit more about how your time at MSU maybe shaped how you even are today? Well, I was here for one year, or less than one year, actually, to write my master's thesis. I had a wonderful professor, Dr. Walter Emery. And I came and interviewed uh, at this university and others uh, with my thesis in mind. I was already possessed by my passion. And I wanted to write on satellite uh, technologies and how they would affect communications. And surprisingly, a number of universities uh, didn't see the wisdom of that. I couldn't find someone who wanted to take that as a thesis. Wisconsin would, of course. I was a you know, good student, uh, uh, you know, an honor student at the university. But I, I wanted to go someplace else. I just wanted to have a different experience. And I interviewed with Walter, Dr. Walter Emery, and he was a professor of international law. And he said to me, and I can hear his voice, he said to me, well, Kay, he said, I don't know anything about satellites. I don't know anything about communications. But if what you say is true, it's going to have a big impact on international law. So I'd be delighted to have you study here. And I came as a merit scholar, and I was in a special international program of, I think, 10 students, all from different disciplines, agriculture, economics, communications, etc. It was a fascinating one-year program, actually. Uh, and it was internationally oriented. It was under the supervision of Dr. Emery. Who were some of your other early mentors, even as you began to get into the business? Well, I would have to say that my father influenced me a great deal um, in, in sort of what my morals are, uh, in wh how I looked at life and people. And uh, my mother uh, influenced my spirit. Uh, they're plain folks, 
from I'm from Wisconsin. They're uh, just good, solid, working, middle-class people. Um, but I had great value for education. And uh, had absolutely an open mind to anything their children wanted to do. So I never had any idea or thoughts presented to me that I shouldn't be just anything I wanted to be. Although my father insisted that I take typing in high school, which I refused to do. I said, I'm not going to be a secretary, and that's that, Pop. And I just went on. Of course, today, with computers, we all type everything, and, you know, we text message and do all these sorts of things, so maybe he was prescient. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, so my parents certainly had a good influence on me. I had teachers who had uh, a terrific influence on me. Um, in high school, one in particular, who was a very strange man, Dr. Parmalee, who taught chemistry, not my best subject, um, but he was a very dis- typical, out-of-central casting chemistry teacher. His clothes never fit. His stomach bulged out of his shirt. His tie couldn't button his button, so his shirt would be open, but the tie would go across the open. And he sort of drooled when he talked, but I really found him an endearing character. And he had, uh, in our high school, uh, was not a premier suburban high school, um, South Markey High School. Uh, and there weren't a lot of students that went to college. I think a very small percentage, actually, of us went to college. Uh, but Dr. Parmalee had high aspirations for me. Uh, and uh, so in his weirdness, he was a mentor. Uh, so uh, he certainly was an encourager of high aspirations, which I think people need to have somewhere along the line, you know. Kay Koplovitz is with us on MSU today. Who do you admire in the in the business today? Well, I admired David Packard uh, for a lot of reasons. He's deceased now, of course. Um, I just thought that the environment that they created and the vision they had for technologies uh, was, and, and especially their philanth- his philanthropic uh, contributions, uh, really. I really admire. Um, others have followed. Others preceded him, of course. You know, we have the Rockefellers and the, you know, many people who built the nation in various types of industries and have given back a great deal uh, to our country. But I, I, in my earlier days, a uh, person that I greatly uh, admired. Uh, there are, you know, many other people uh, that that I would say that sort of influence my thinking. Some of them philosophers, some of them writers. Um, Solzhenitsyn influenced my thinking in literature. Uh, so, and and in human uh, sort of human actions and human inspirations and the deviousness of the human mind as well. I mean, you know, there's the good and the evil in everyone uh, and. We hope good wins out. But so lots of people influence me. I'm a sort of a person who, I'm a futurist, not a historian. I'm kind of weak on history. Um, I like the future a lot. I can remember the future better than I can remember the past. Um, but I just think that uh, I was fortunate enough to have exposure to a liberal arts education, which I think is very important, actually. Uh, undervalued by some uh, in our society. I think science is great. I was a science major myself in biologies. 
I love science. I think it's, you know, terrific. But I also think you need to have sort of that expansive encouragement of the liberal arts where things are possible. Um, maybe not replicatable, but possible. And uh, so I think they're both great influences for me. Let's talk a bit about what you're doing now. You've created Springboard Enterprises, uh, Bold Cap Ventures, and, and of course, Koplovitz and Company. And you're a leader in raising venture capital, capital for women entrepreneurs and in launching new programming companies that challenge the frontiers of this digital age we're in. Talk a bit about this overarching goal of helping women launch businesses and how your companies are related in achieving that goal, hopefully. Yes, I, I think giving back is very important. And when I uh, launched Madison Square Garden Sports, the forerunner to USA, there was no capital. Uh, even banks didn't want to lend to television companies. I mean, cash flow businesses were not uh, in favor. Uh, and everybody thought this was a, an incredibly stupid idea, perhaps, uh, the, to launch programs via satellite and cable. So. There, the only person who understood it was a man that, that I worked for in the cable industry, Bob Rosencrantz, who understood my passion for this and understood, the, because he was uh, CEO of a cable company, understood how it could change his business and make it extremely more profitable. Uh, if he could get more subscribers, and to get more subscribers, you needed programming. So I knew sort of intuitively, even though I came from the television side of the business, intuitively, that that you could uh, improve the and make the cable business very much more lucrative uh, if you had original programming. So when I did that, there was not access to capital. Twenty-some years later, when I left USA Networks, 21 years later, 1998, I looked around and I realized women still weren't getting access to capital. Now, my lack of access to capital back in the 70s was not necessarily because I was a woman, but I didn't even get that far. I mean, because there's just nobody was interested in the industry. But in 1998, money, capital, was pouring over the transom. I mean, it was like drinking from a fire hose. And a lot of it was getting wasted, but not on women, because women weren't accessing it. And I said, this is wrong. There were a lot of women in sciences, biotechnology, technology, software, uh, media, and you know, launching companies under capital starvation. And I said, this is wrong, and I'm going to do something about it. So I um, started out uh, as a chair of the National Women's Business Council at the time on a presidential appointment and used that platform to really bring together private equity uh, to get women up in front of venture capitalists, to identify women who are starting high-growth companies that would be interesting to venture capitalists and to really get them in front of them. And um, we launched with the first venture capital forum in uh, January 2000. We had gotten 350 applications three times the number we were hoping for. We chose 26 companies to present. At that capital forum, 22 of them got funded. Two of them merged their companies. One woman sold her company and one woman wasn't funded. It was a spectacular outcome, unheard of in the venture capital community, that so many companies would be funded. And I think it's because these companies were so far below the radar screen that venture capitalists assumed they were not worthy of seeing. So that really started... Uh, the springboard enterprises. Uh, since that time, we've presented 16 venture capital forums. We do them in different cities, now mostly in Boston, Chicago, and Silicon Valley, but we've done them in New York and Dallas and other places. And 
We've presented 347 companies. Uh, 42% of our companies get funding out of our venture capital forums. 80% of them ultimately get funding, and that's because we train them. We train them about what venture capital means to them. It's equity position in their company. Those equity investors want to get a payback. They want to get three to five times their money in five years or less. And, uh, you know, you've got to be a high-growth company to meet these, uh, you know, benchmarks. And we teach them how to talk to venture capitalists. And, and so it's a whole training process that we put them through, a boot camp. It's rigorous. They learn a lot. They are morphed when they come into the boot camp and when they leave the boot camp. You're seeing different people. You're seeing with confidence uh, and presentation skills as well as business plans that have been toughened up. And uh, we, the, our companies have raised $3.7 billion. Um, we've had six IPOs. 25% of our companies have already sold for positive liquidity events for their investors. It is perhaps the best thing I've ever done in my life. Kay Kaplovitz, what steps do you recommend today's young MSU women take to grow a career in communications? Well, I think you, you know, there's so many choices uh, to people in communications because um, we're now in a chaotic period. This is a wonderful time to be in this discipline because we're in chaos. And in chaos, there's magnificent opportunity. I love chaos for this reason. Now, if I were an old established media company, I would be frightened because this chaotic environment is upturning all of the business underpinnings of different companies, and a lot is at risk. But for someone coming into the business, risk is a good thing. So I think people you know, really need to train the skills, think about what really excites them, find and experiment with as many different forms in the communication field, whether that's online, whether that's mobile, whether that's uh, production techniques, whether what, whatever area that they really feel um, excited by, and really vigorously explore all the different opportunities until something really grabs hold of them that they really want to get up every day and do that. That's true of anything. I mean, it's true if you're a doctor, a teacher, a fireman, a lawyer, it doesn't really matter. You've got to want to get up and do it every day, otherwise it's just drudgery. And you know, life is so exciting. Life really should be lived. It should be enjoyed. It should be explored. Yes, we all have our challenges and we all have our periods of difficulty, but even those should be relished as lessons and we always have the will to change them. So I think today for people in communications, really the most important thing is get in, get your hands dirty, explore, try different things, and when something really grips you and you want to get up and do it every day, then just pursue it with all your vigor. And, uh, and I think you'll be a happy person. That's Kay Koplovitz, holder of a master's degree from Michigan State University. I'm Russ White. Thanks for listening to MSU Today on Impact Radio, WDBM East Lansing from the campus of MSU and Spartan Podcast at SpartanPodcast.com. For more MSU Today, visit us on the web at MSUToday.com. Thanks for listening to this evening's Exposure, only on 88.9 The Impact.